and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, got old Lightning saddled up and uh, ready to go. We're in 2020 now. Uh, pretty amazing. And uh, just uh, eager, to, eager to start uh, doing what we do here, man, and uh, talk a little bit of wrestling and Today, we're going to get into all kinds of different things, and uh, one of the new things that I'm going to be adding to every show, so really looking forward to it. Okay, well, where are we going to start today? Well, today, uh, Studcast, obviously, we're moving into into the year on our Studcast of 1976, uh, just about, it's pretty amazing, here we are in 2020, and we're reaching the same time frame in 1976, just into the first part of the part of the year. So uh, we're going to be moving into January of 1976, and uh, and as fans know, if they listen to the last studcast, I kind of struggled mightily to, to survive as the owner of a potential uh, of a of the newest potential wrestling territory in the world. I've been involved for 14 months, and the kind of the last studcast just laid out for fans uh, what I had gone through in that first uh, 14 months, and uh, in 1976. Uh, uh, I'd like to use the word we from here on. Uh, you know, I survived 1975, uh, but in uh, 1976, I want to use the word we because there's a lot more people than me involved in this process by this point. And I've got guys working for me uh, full time. It's a different operation, that's for sure. My last studcast described what the last 14 months were like, and this one's going to begin with a pretty extraordinary journey into 1976, which is going to turn out to be the breakout year for Southeastern wrestling. We've been there for 14 months. We've laid the groundwork. And uh, in 1976, we're going to start to reap some of the harvest, so to speak. Business is going to pick up. We're going to cover the first Sunday afternoon match in Knoxville on January 4th in this program, 1976. We'll talk about the TV that promoted it, the gate, for that house, the payoffs for that house, as we normally do. And we're also going to discuss in this podcast today, other cities where we're beginning to run. Talent, other talent that's going to be coming in the early part of 76. Some of the angles and 
And we're, we're just going to look at wrestling from a, a, several different points of view in this particular studcast. And then at the end of the studcast, uh, I'm going to welcome all the fans. I think we talked about it a little bit in the last one uh, to a new segment that we're going to be doing at the end of every program called a Studs Learning Tree. And uh, it's going to be a, a segment in which I can just pick a subject. Uh, and I'm going to really encourage fans to get involved with me in this. They can pick this subject if they'd like. They'll be able to go on uh, social media to my Facebook page, which is Ron Fuller Welch. That one is uh, totally full. I've got the maximum number of people, friends I can have on that one. But I have a second page that has an unlimited amount of friends that I can have. And if uh, fans would like to go to that one, it's Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page on Facebook. All you need to do is like the page. And you'll automatically become a friend with me. And what I'm going to do, and on Twitter, my handle there is Ron Fuller Welch. And on both of those social media sites, you can go there every Wednesday uh, when uh, each studcast, new ones come out on Wednesday, and I will leave a post there. And if you have an idea or you want to like me to explain something, or uh, if you'd like to know something about the wrestling business, that you may not be able to find anywhere else, you're welcome to leave those questions that you have there. And uh, I'm going to tackle those. And uh, and I'll be what I'll do is announce the person that sent that suggestion. Today's program, I have a special one, but uh, this one is one that's going to come out of today's show. And I think fans are going to find it very interesting because uh, you don't hear much about how you take care of business when things go wrong in the sport of wrestling. Uh, lots of times it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. But in today's learning tree at the end of the show, we're going to talk about an event that happens during this Sunday afternoon in 1976 that uh, I'm going to base my learning tree around today. So let's start with the first event in Knoxville in 1976. It's on Sunday afternoon, three o'clock in Howie Park. And the building that we operated in there is called the Jacobs Building. I've been continuing to add seats and bleachers to this building since I came to Knoxville, uh, especially on the second level of that building. Uh, I've been trying to get the seating capacity. At this point uh, in early 1976, I'm up to about 3,500 seats in that building as compared to 2,000 when I came there 14 months earlier. I'm still going to move to the Coliseum, obviously, when the cards are good enough. So Sundays in the winter are better for me than Friday nights. And I may be wrong about this, but this is a decision I made early on in Knoxville that I wanted to try these Sunday afternoons rather than Friday nights, especially in the winter. Once the weather's nice, uh, we go back to Friday night. But during the entire course of the winter, I like to run Sunday afternoons. And, and there's some reasons for that. Because we're in the South, you know, we're, we're where drivers are very unaccustomed to snow down there in the Knoxville area, and uh, and it uh, greatly affects your crowds when you get snow there, oddly enough. There's very few salt trucks, even on the roads in Tennessee, and especially in the Knoxville area. You got actually probably see more salt trucks around Knoxville than in other parts of Tennessee, because you do have some mountains there around Knoxville. So it made much more sense for me to expect people to be able to drive in snowy conditions in the daytime rather than trying to drive at night. So they're going to come to the match. It's not going to be dark or it's just barely dark. And by the time they leave, it's dark. Uh, the temperature has dropped some. 
the highways have kind of frozen over again. You got a little ice here and there. I always wanted to keep my fans as safe as possible. I didn't want them to drive home and have an accident going home. So I felt like if we ran in the afternoon, it would be a lot safer for my fans. Uh, you also have about uh, four or five times in the winter that you're going to get that snow there in Knoxville. Uh, and uh, when you did, sometimes you would lose 50% of your crowd. Your, your crowd would be dramatic, dr dramatically cut. Um uh, and, you know, you're trying to get your wrestlers paid as much as possible. You want to get the best talent you can. You want to be able to pay them as good as you can so they can stay with you. And, uh, you know, if you get those bad crowds and this is your big town, uh, then their payoffs going to be bad. And they might end up having a horrible week. You don't want that to happen to you. You own a wrestling company. You want that pay to be pretty well level. Uh, you want it to grow, uh, going in the right direction for sure. And But you sure don't want to have these bad days. And by running on Sunday afternoons rather than a Friday night, it certainly did make a difference in the wintertime for us. Uh, so, and also there's a third reason for it. When you run on a Sunday afternoon, most territories don't wrestle on Sundays. So, uh, you know, if you run on Sunday, then you have the opportunity, if you want to, to, to run seven days a week. Uh, we didn't do that in Knoxville, but when I got to Pensacola and moved southeastern there and formed Continental, we were a seven-day-a-week territory quite a bit. Uh, and that's what most of the big territories around the United States back in the days were. They ran seven days a week. So, you know, uh, the guys were making back in the early 70s, early part of 76, uh, about 500 a week, but they were only working three or four nights a week sometimes. Uh, it wasn't bad for 1976 money, uh, but, uh, you know, it's going to grow in 76. As I said, this is going to be the breakout year for us. And uh, guys are really going to start making some money working for me uh, with the short trips in the beautiful part of the country. Uh, that's a pretty good deal. in 1976 to make five hundred dollars a week. So this, this may be my uh, annual stupid question of the week, but, you know, as I thought of you running on a Sunday afternoon and here we're, you know, the first week in January, how much of a competition for your promotion and maybe promotions everywhere, maybe this is why they didn't run on Sundays, how much of a competition is something like the NFL and how much did that factor in? Because, you know, you have people that are going to want to stay home and watch and especially in January, you're talking playoffs. So how much did that factor in the, you know, the, the, the strength of the NFL, which isn't as big, wasn't as big then as it is now, but was still a factor. Uh, did you worry about possibly fans that weren't going to come to your events because maybe they were football fans? That's a great question. Uh, you know, but when you when I, to be honest with you, when I came to Knoxville, they didn't have a football, an NFL football type of uh, attendance at wrestling matches. I mean, those people were old country people, and they wanted to come there and see a good old fight. Sure. Uh, they didn't care about football on Sunday. <laughs> they wanted to see their wrestling. They didn't care if it was at night or in the afternoon, if it was Monday or Sunday. You know, it was, made no difference to them. So, you know, I was dealing with a crowd that I was developing my crowd. I wanted to grow to the point of where I could wrestle uh, and and my fans be NFL fans. You know, I mean, uh, that's what I wanted to get to where I could draw those, those type of fans as well as those country people. And uh, eventually, that's what I'm going to do. It's going to start happening in, in 1976, as a matter of fact. Okay. Fair so point. Please continue. 
So we only run Knoxville uh, twice in December of 1975, and the fans are, are eager for wrestling in January of 1976. They've not had their four matches every, every month, and uh, you know they're they're eager to see their wrestling. So, so let me give you the card first: Sunday afternoon, January 4th, 1976. A newcomer, uh, a cousin of Jerry Stubbs, by the way, had impressed me. From his first match since his arrival, his name was Mike Stallings, and uh, he had his—he's going to get his first match against Superstar Number Two on this Sunday afternoon. And the Superstar Number Two is Leon Baxter, the wrestling pro out of uh, Alabama, a tremendous athlete, a very strong guy, a great shooter, uh, really a class act. Uh, in wrestling and really I'm I'm really pleased and honored to have him in my crew. Uh we're having elimination matches each week during this during the whole month of January to crown the new Southeastern heavyweight champion. So we're having a tournament and there's about two or three, sometimes three matches per week that is eliminating guys from that tournament. And before the end of January, we will have the first ever Southeastern heavyweight champion. Uh, the next match are the are two of those matches. The second and the third match on this sat Sunday afternoon are for that Southeastern tournament. And one of those is my brother is going to work against the superstar number one, who is a guy named Dick Dunn, another guy from that same part of the country as where Leon Baxter comes from down there in Alabama, who is another guy that has a tremendous wrestling reputation and extremely good in the ring. Great, great worker. Uh, and uh, my, my father actually trained both of these guys, late 50s. So they've been in business for 15, close to 20 years. They are really veterans, uh, and uh, I need that in my crew because I got a lot of young baby faces, and these heels, are they, they know how to get baby faces over, and they know how to have great matches with guys that don't know that much in the ring yet. Dunn was a perfect fit for Leon Baxter. Uh, their size, from the size of their size, they're both pretty much comparable in size, and they were a masked team. And they made an absolutely fantastic team for me. Uh, Dunn had worked partners with me, with Don Carson, actually, uh, on the western side of Tennessee for many, many years. Uh, they were a fantastic team over there. They're champions for a long, long time. And I'd spent three months with both those guys, Carson and Dunn, in Australia in 1973. So I'm very familiar with them, close friends with them. Uh, they are very good friends with my father. Obviously, Dunn had trained with my dad, so uh, they're 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 like buddies of mine, and uh, and I'm really lucky to have all three of them. Uh, and uh, like I said, I was very lucky. They're talented, and 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 the three of them are very close friends, and that worked out good for me because I I'm just trying to start a territory. I need something to attract guys to my new territory. And the fact that these three guys are very good friends with each, with each other, they don't want to work every night anyway, uh, and they just get together and party with each other, have a great time. So they're very happy to work that three or four nights a week. That, and we're not up to six nights a week yet. We're going to get there. But uh, that's the reason they're hanging around, basically. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, the main event for this particular night is going to be the Tennessee Tag Championship. The new champions are Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, and they're managed by 
the general, Homo Odell, got the big puffed out lips and big fat boy. I mean, uh, he's a he's a real heat seeker, man. I tell you, fans really, really hated Homer Odell. And uh, they're going to be working against a very unlikely team, the great rivals of 1975, probably me against the guy I had a lot of matches with in 75, Ron Wright. And uh, we're going to be managed in this particular match on that Sunday afternoon by Ron Wright's brother, Don Wright, because we've had one match already, and uh, Homer Odell got involved in it. So uh, we just set this one up that Ron Wright's going to be in our corner. So before we get to the results of this card, let's talk about the TV on the day before. And I think that's a critical fact right there. I love the fact that that we do our television on Saturday afternoons at 2 o'clock, and 24 hours later, basically, at 3 o'clock on Sunday, we're in the ring. And that's that's a lot better uh, than running on a Friday night because you're, you're six days away if you're running your TV on a Saturday and you're wrestling on a Friday. Fans have a tendency to forget about what happened on TV. Uh, and, uh, and this way... It happens right there, and by gosh, tomorrow afternoon, you come down to the building, and you're going to see it for yourself. So uh, Don Carson opened up the show, and uh, as he always did, he opened it up with with a lot of back and forth with the studio audience. He loved to work the crowd. He was great about warming fans up, and he was doing a lot of shut up, shut up. I mean, he was constantly screaming at the crowd. Uh, They hated him. And, and I love to start the TV with him because he got them up. He got people mad. He got them into things right early on in the television show. Uh, he had a great match with another young, blonde-haired guy like Carson was, and that was Tommy Rich. Uh, Tommy was improving every time I saw him. I knew he was destined for stardom. He's one of those kids you watch him and you go, this guy is going to be good. He always worked hard in the ring. And he always got his opponent over when he lost. Uh, Carson, having won the match, he strutted to the set with Les after beating Tommy uh, for the first interview about his tournament match the following day against Jimmy Golden. Uh, He was joined by his actual best friends, and they were actual best friends as superstars. Carson got great heat talking about Golden being a crybaby and promising to give the crybaby a little taste of his peanut butter glove. <laughs> you know, the, the fans, they, they booed like crazy, but I sat up in the control room and I laughed like hell. Man, I really liked uh, Carson's interviews. He really, really did some really good stuff. The superstars talked about how young and inexperienced Robert, one of them is going to wrestle Robert, my brother. The other one's going to wrestle Mike Stallings, who was a newcomer. Uh, and uh, they were going to give him a wrestling lesson, the way they put it, I think, for the following afternoon. The second match was perfect after the Carson interview uh, because uh, it was the very popular and the recently returned Jimmy Golden uh, coming back to Southeastern Wrestling. And wow, they was he greeted quite crazy greeting by the television studio audience. Uh, Jimmy beat Tony Peters, big guy. Uh, with another one of those beautiful drop kicks off the top ropes that Jimmy did. Uh, and I loved to do that finish, have him do that finish, because it always looked so darn impressive in slow motion. We were one of the only televisions back in those days that did slow motion. So, uh, you know, it was it was really, really a strong selling point to get my TV over as being the best in the world at that time. Fans loved it as well. 
Jimmy joined Robert Sitt after this for the second interview. Uh, they both did an opposite interview, basically to Carson's interview and the superstars comment, calling those guys the old men, you know, and uh, the time had passed you by, you know, they were just making these smart remarks that, you know, that you guys are just too old for us. You know, we're, we're not going to beat you up too bad because we feel sorry for your old butts. You know, and the crowd really loved it. And uh, and uh, up comes the personality profile next in the program. Uh, newcomer Mike Stylings is in this profile. This profile is done uh, in the studio prior to the, uh, earlier in the day before we get the television program for sure. And uh, it's done in these big old easy chairs. They just sit there and it's a gets a nice little segment. It's different than anybody else is doing in the country. Don't talk much about uh, anything other than your ha your hobbies and things like that. And uh, Les was so great at this. And it happens to be that Mike Stallings is a hell of an athlete. Uh, actually, he was drafted to play baseball in the pros. Uh, and he's so humble and likable in this personality profile. Uh, I watched the profile, you know, and we cut it, like I say, long before the fans come into the studio. And I knew that the fans were going to love this kid. He just he just had something about him. And Les, you know, brought out the best in him like he did everybody on those profiles. And it was just another one of those classic personality profiles that made such a tremendous impact on the entire television show. Third match was Mike Stalling, live in the ring. So that's great. He's there dressed in his suit and doing the profile and uh, boom, right then he comes on live. Now the people have had a chance to hear his story and to see a little bit about who he is. And now he's going to wrestle for him for the first time. And, uh, and it was just, I was right about my impression. The crowd gave him a great, great, you know, cheer, man. They were really into the kid and it, it's his first show. Uh, and he's going to have a great future in, in Southeastern. But it's going to be unfortunate at the beginning, and we'll get into that a little bit later. He was up against a much bigger opponent in this TV match, Don Lambert, who was about a 300-pounder. I knew Stallings was good, but it's always special to see a young guy uh, who has the field to how to get himself over. And Stallings just had that natural ability. He, he knew he knew to how to sell, and now he's in there with a big 300-pounder. And, uh, and he did a lot of selling, and Lambert took advantage of that. Uh, he didn't have the opportunity to beat on many baby faces. So, you know, uh, Stallings gave him a lot of the match. Uh, and there was uh, that's where so many young baby faces make their mistake. They don't want to sell because they, if they sell for a long time, they feel they're, they're going to look weak. But uh, the, he, Stallings had it figured, man. Uh, you know, he sold long enough that when he made his comeback, he got twice the reaction that sometimes the young baby faces get. Uh, he just really timed his comeback right. Uh, the studio crowd uh, were really into him. And when he started that comeback, he, they really got into him at that point. And he bumped the big man, the 300-pounder. I'd never seen anybody slam Lambrick, and he body slammed him, and then he suplexed him. And I was like, wow, I couldn't believe that uh, Stallings was strong enough to suplex him. Uh, and then he finished him with a, a great hold. And then because Stallings was a kid from Georgia, like Jerry Stubbs, they both lived right in the outskirts of Atlanta, he had been a Wrestling 2 fan growing up. 
and he beat this big boy. He gave him that suplex, and he backed off into the corner, and when the guy got up, he hit him with what running knee lift, just like the old Wassing 2 used to use. Uh, I sat up in the top of the, up there in the control room, and hell, I was cheering for him myself when it was over. I was like, wow, this kid is going to be phenomenal. And the crowd erupted when he hit him with that wrestling two knee lift. Uh, it was really good. What a hell of a match it was. Uh, Ron and Don Wright went with me after that, after the Stallings match, and we watched the video from the week before where General Homer Odell saved his team, me and Ron Wright, by ourselves. Homer Odell's sitting on the floor out there. He gets involved in the tag match and uh, gets gets his team disqualified to save the belt. And uh, Ron Wright and I had a discussion during this interview about uh, how how many months I had been out of action because of my collarbone and that uh, we had just started to become a team uh, when this happened to me. Uh, we both agreed we didn't know just how good we were going to be as a team because we hadn't been a team very much. We'd only had three or four matches together a team. But we knew that with his brother there in our corner, we had the right guy in the corner for sure, and he was going to take care of Homer for us. Uh, we both agreed we had to beat each other up many times, which is the truth. A lot of blood spilt between me and him, and a lot of it from the chisel, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, uh, and then that was true. crowd responded to that because they, they knew that was the truth. We had had a lot of fights with each other, and now we're going to go out there and become a team. Uh, in fact, the crowd pretty much responded to everything during that interview. Les closed out that segment, and we waited there because we're going to be on the actual interview later. We didn't mention anything about the wrestling tomorrow afternoon because we tried to keep our television program clean. Uh, if we said that we're going to be wrestling against these guys tomorrow afternoon in the in the uh, basic part of the program that was not set aside for interview time, it would go around to all the other markets and they would think in every market that we're supposed to be wrestling against Austin and Malone for the Tennessee Tag Championship. Didn't want to do that. So uh, we really focused in on this interview portion about tomorrow afternoon. We could really hammer it at that point. Don Wright finished that interview for us by saying he was going to stay on top of the general and, uh, and we were going to bring home the belts the following afternoon. You know, so much of the history of Tennessee wrestling uh, involves Ron Wright, and you've got your little impression of him that's very funny. Uh, and, and people that work with Ron, they always seem like they had, a, a, they had their own impression of, of Ron Wright, and Ron's such an important figure in the history of Tennessee wrestling. But we don't talk as much about his brother, Don. Tell us how was Don different and how was he similar to his brother, the more well-known Ron Wright? Well, they both talked alike. You know, they both had that East Tennessee accent, uh, and it was pretty, pretty, pretty much the same. You couldn't tell a lot of difference between Don talking and Ron talking. Don was smaller than Ron. Ron was probably uh, three inches taller, maybe, and maybe uh, 20, 20, 25 pounds bigger, possibly. I don't know exactly how much bigger. But uh, Don had a tremendous amount of experience as well. They worked together a lot as tags. I used them together in, uh, in my territory, Southeastern, a lot as tags, but I split them up a lot. I used Ron more because, for whatever reason, Ron was over better than Don. 
And that might be the case because he's the older brother and he's a little bigger and fans just naturally believe that, well, maybe he's a little tougher. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think my brother and I might've gone through that same syndrome in a way, you know, I'm a little bigger and a little taller and, and people, uh, it's hard for that younger brother to be stronger than the older brother. And I, I don't know the exact reason for that, but that seems to be the case a whole lot. Uh, so the last part of this match, uh, the, the last TV match of the day is Norville Austin and Butch Malone. They're the champions. They parade into the ring and, uh, and uh, old Homer's there with him and holding their hands up and takes the belts out of the ring. He has his normal customary deal he does uh, with handling the belts most of the time. And they're wrestling against a great team, Rocky Smith, the, uh, the club-footed inferno, basically, uh, from years earlier, and Dennis Hall, who was a great wrestler back in those days. Uh, and what a great match they had at the last at the end of the TV. Uh, the studio audience was really into it. And when Ron Wright and his brother Don stepped out, and me, we all three just stepped out in the middle of their match. They weren't expecting it into the studio where people could see that we were right there. Uh, and so could they see it. And, uh, and it forced uh, Malone and Austin to change their style in the ring. They were really kicking butt until they saw us. And then the other team started to take over a little bit. And then Don Wright just went straight over face-to-face -face with Homer Odell. And Homer retreated. <laughs> he took off. He went. He left the studio, went back to the dressing room. And the crowd loved that. So they could see that, you know, Don Wright being on our side following day is going to make a big difference in things. Uh, and Austin and Malone pretty quickly ended the match as quickly as they could. They won. And the three of them returned to the set for the last interview. But the crowd was so into it at that point that they drowned them out. You could not hear what they were saying. Uh, Homer got mad about it. And you could see it in his face. And he just grabbed the belts and his two guys and said, we're out of here. You know, and then they left a minute of uh, interview time with nobody there at the desk but less. So me and Ron Wright are right around the corner in the back. Uh, and I said, heck, let's go. So we went out there and took their last minute of interview time, which the crowd loved that. And uh, they just got a big kick out of the end of the show. And uh, it turned out to be another one of those really great TVs. Let's go back then. Now we've talked about the television. Let's talk about what actually happened the next afternoon. Uh, the first card in 1976. Mike Stallings and superstar number two. That was Leon Baxter. Uh, they had a very exciting opening match that was intended to be a 20-minute draw. That's that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want either one, the, uh, either one of them to lose, basically. Uh, but around the 15-minute mark, uh, Stallings hurt his back. And, and I was standing up top on the second level of this little building watching the match, and I saw it. I could tell he hurt his back. And, uh, and Baxter beat him. Uh, Baxter just beat him right away. And, uh, and he, he beat him with a, with a Boston crab, which you don't see that move very much. Uh, you don't see it at all in today's wrestling, I guess. But, uh, there was a, it was a very unusual move back in that time frame too. Uh, it was probably around the 15 minute mark of that. The match was going to be, uh, the bell was going to be ringing at 20 minutes anyway. And, uh, so, you know, 
and Stalin's hurt really bad. It turns out he's hurt really bad, and Baxter realizes it. So, so we're going to be taking a much closer look at this particular match at the end of today's studcast. In fact, it's going to be the subject of today's learning tree. Uh, it's going to. I'm going to talk to fans about uh, how how a, how experienced wrestlers can make such a dramatic difference in in a wrestling match and in your company as well. So uh, that's going to be kind of the subject matter of today's learning tree at the end of this program. And it, it'll be a, a great example of uh, quick thinking, you know, and that's what that's what actually happened there. Leon Baxter just instantly turned this very negative injury into a very positive outcome. And I will explain all that at the, day, at the end of today's program. Second match of that afternoon was a Southeastern Heavyweight Championship tournament match with Robert against superstar Dick Dunn. Uh, all of these tournament matches are 30-minute time limits. And uh, I, I made this rule up, uh, and I, I was so thankful for it. What have, I made a rule up that they're all 30-minute time limits, but if the time limit expires, both guys lose. And so by doing that, it put a lot of pressure on both guys, and it really added a lot to the match for the fans because when they started getting close to that 30-minute mark, the fans really, really got into it. Uh, these tournament matches are very important to the fans, especially when they, they would bring out – I'd have them take out for all these tournament matches the brand-new Southeastern Heavyweight Championship belt. It had never been worn. But every time there was a tournament match – they would bring it down to the ring. They would hand it to the referee. He would hold it over his head, and he would walk to all four sides of the ring, show the fans the belt. Uh, by doing this, man, it puts such a magnificent uh, emphasis on the Southeastern Championship. Uh, and uh, so Dick Dunn, you know, he's another tremendous talent in the ring, and, and he'd been wrestling for more than 15 years at this point, and he had my I had my very first match with Dick Dunn, as a matter of fact, him and Don Carson. And my dad was my partner and wrestled in Arkansas in 1968 when I was still playing basketball. Not supposed to be wrestling, but I was. It was my first match with those guys and spent three months in Australia with them. Uh, and they were the Australian tag champions the entire tour. They never lost. Uh, <clears throat> Robert was really over because he had taken my place when I had that collarbone problem. He stepped right in, became partners with Ron Wright. And uh, he, he was at this point a top talent, a top baby face for Southeastern. Uh, there was a different field in the building when these tournament matches started because of how the belt was presented before the match. And, uh, and it added importance to these all these uh, the tournament matches and when the bell rang you could just feel the crowd was different so you could sense that this match was more meaningful than the normal match this tournament match went past 25 minutes and neither wrestler taking the control until robert started a strong comeback uh, and the timekeeper at 25 minutes with five minutes left would announce the four minutes left five minutes he would count down the final minutes so this tournament match past 25 minutes, and uh, neither wrestler really had taken control until Rob starts a real strong comeback after 25 minutes. When the timekeeper asked, 
announced the 25 minutes were gone, five minutes remaining. The crowd was standing up at that point. The second superstar arrived at the ring. As the announcer said, four minutes remaining. Now Rob's wrestling them one superstar, and he's got one out there on the floor. Second superstar started banging on the apron, and he was trying to rally his partner. You know, he was trying to get Dunn, Dick Dunn. That's who Rob was wrestling. He's trying to get Dunn to, uh, to get fired up and start making a comeback. So Dunn finally stops Rob, and he grabs a headlock. And as the announcer, just about the time the announcer says, three minutes remaining. And the second superstar then jumps up on the apron of the ring behind Rob, and Rob shoots Dunn off into the ropes on the opposite side of the ring from where the other superstar is on the apron. And uh, when they comes charging, when when Dunn comes charging, Robert Robert just sidesteps him and shoves him head first right into his partner who's standing on the apron. Uh, that sent the first superstar, the one standing on the apron, flying out into the crowd. And Robert just rolls Dick Dunn up in the old O'Connor roll, man. Uh, crowd pop, man. That's, they're thinking this is over. It's it. And uh, referee counted two, and the superstar kicked out. The, the announcer now is down to one minute. And the announcer says one minute remaining. Uh, the building was going crazy at that point. I mean, they were really into this match. And both these guys now are both selling. Rob's, Rob's down selling, uh, and so is Dunn down. And Rob grabs a headlock on Dunn, and Dunn shoots him into the referee. And uh, then, then he, Dunn falls on his face, and the referee goes down in the middle of the ring, and Robert goes back, staggers back, and falls uh, with his back into the ropes. He kind of just hangs his arm over the top of the ropes so that he doesn't fall, but he's, he's not able to pin him. And Dunn's basically on the mat. He's, he's ready to be pinned. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, the other superstars in the crowd trying to get to his feet. And out of nowhere, because the referee is now no longer up and seeing anything, Don Carson comes down. He loaded his glove. He nailed Rob with it. He put Dunn on top of Rob. He put the, pulled him, went and grabbed the referee, pulled him over there where he could count, and he left the ring, and the announcer was calling 10 seconds remaining. And uh, the referee reached over, he counted three, and about uh, at the two-second mark, he raised the superstar's hand. Uh, so you can imagine what happened from there. I mean, that place was wild. The first superstar and Carson, they grabbed up Dunn, and they started – for the dressing room, but they had arrived. They they couldn't get to uh, the aisle. They couldn't even get to the aisle, much less get down the aisle before they were mobbed. And uh, it was only the second match of the night. I mean, you know you're going to have a tremendous night when you got a riot in the second match. Uh, and the bodies in the chairs, I mean, chairs were flying, people were flying, uh, and they just, they made their exit. They went through the aisle, no matter who was there. They just knocked everybody down that they could. And uh, the police are doing their best to keep people off of them. But uh, the mob follows them all the way through the building. You, you could see them where they were. You couldn't see them, but they're covered up by people and the, and the, and the mob is moving. So, you know, they're somewhere in that group down there. Uh and that was what wrestling, you know, I got a feeling, man, right then I said, man, this is maybe what's going to happen in 1976, you know, because wrestling heat, that's what built businesses. And uh, and there was going to be a whole bunch of it in 1976. Wrestling's going to take a whole new uh, 
new pattern and a new and they're going to it's going to reach heights that it's never seen in Knoxville in 1976. You know, the crowd is still they weren't settled down when the bell rang for the next tournament match, which happened to be Jimmy Golden and against you guessed it, Don Carson. So uh, needless to say, this match was a barn burner too. Uh, Jimmy looked great as he tried to take some some uh, heat off of <laughs> some heat off of himself, but the crowd was uh, they wanted to get their hands on him. Carson guess kind you know Carson wanted to get some heat off of himself because he didn't want to have to fight his way to the dressing room again. So Golan took a big portion of the first part of that match, uh, but the crowd uh, the crowd didn't never get back. They never backed off. They they just stayed up like they were the entire night. Finally, Carson got an opportunity. Uh, referees down. He loads up his glove behind the ref, and uh, and he he nails Golden with it. And uh, Jimmy Jimmy gets gets bleeding, and uh, and he's bleeding pretty darn good. I mean uh, Carson just keeps working on him. Uh, he punishes him, man. And uh, Jimmy's bloodier and bloodier as the crowd as the match goes on, and the crowd started coming out of their seats and toward the ring. The police there. They were too few to push them all back, obviously. And uh, the second rep that was handling them, went handling this match, uh, he he had to go down there too. To, so, you know, there was two referees. Uh, there was a mob of police around the ring. Uh, Carson's in there beating the hell out of Jimmy. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know, Jimmy grabbed the headlock on him and Carson fired him into the ropes and they collided, the both of them, in the middle of the ring. Carson went down. And Jimmy fell back into the ropes, kind of similar to the way Rob had in the first match, kind of just hanging onto the ropes. And he was standing upright. And the announcer, he's in the 29th minute, one minute remaining, he calls out. And it's time for Rob to get even with Carson for messing him around in the match before. And Rob comes down and pushes Jimmy just straight forward. Jimmy falls right across Carson. And the engine referee gets up and he counts Carson out. Uh, that building exploded. What a what! It just went nuts. When they announced the main event, the place was still bedlam. We went to the ring, Ron and I. It was unbelievable. It was like uh, it was like ten thousand people in that building. Uh, and they introduced uh, Don Wright and us, and uh, we got some uh, thunderous applause. And then the champions come down, and uh, wow, I'd never heard that booze like that since I'd been in that building. It's just one of those nights when fans were just fantastic. They were so into it. And this match had it all. It ended up with both teams fighting, both teams disqualified, uh, and the three heels left the ring just like uh, Carson and the Superstars did, fighting, fighting the crowd. They, they had to fight their way to the dressing room. So I had to hire three more policemen that night. I told the policeman, I said, I need three more policemen next week. They brought them the following week. And I wasn't sure that was going to be enough after seeing what happened that night. We videoed, thank goodness, even the first match. Uh, we videoed every match that night, and I was really happy that we did. And we're going to show almost every one of those. We're going to use every one of those matches eh, on the next Friday's television show. And uh, I guarantee you that sound, uh, when the, we run those videos, was so loud. It sounded like thousands and thousands of people in that building. Well, uh, really, basically, I'm thinking, what a way to start 1976. I'm really, really on fire, just like that crowd.
Okay, let's take our break here, and we will come back after David Summers describes Super Studcast number 24 with the exotic one, Adrian Street. If you have not had the opportunity to listen to the three-hour Super Studcast number 24 with exotic Adrian Street, you're missing the fantastic deep dive into an unbelievable wrestling life at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. The next Super Studcast will be released Tuesday, January 14th. Ron has added a new element to his regular weekly studcast. His history in the sport is perfect for his new studs learning tree each week that educates fans about things pertaining to the sport that few others can at tnstud.com or wherever you get your podcast if you'd like to friend him on facebook go to ron fuller the tennessee stud and like that page or follow him on twitter at ron fuller welch if you're already a friend or follower and you want to leave a question look for his weekly post ask your question there thanks for writing with the tennessee stud So, Ron, I got a quick question for you uh, discussing uh, the event that you just uh, were talking about here. And it's a question that I have for uh, I've talked to Jim Cornette about it and other promoters. And so since I've never had a chance to ask you this question as a promoter, one of the things that in the mid 80s that the WWF at that time was famous for was when they had a a card laid out, they would always have what they called uh, the it was usually sometimes called. Uh, disrespectfully, the beefcake match, because it was the match before the Hogan match where they kind of brought the crowd down. So when Hogan came out, who was their big main event, it would really pop the crowd. So is there a danger in some sense in having your crowd get so hyped up and so popped after the second match? How do you approach that as a promoter? Well, first of all, sometimes things happen that you don't think. Uh, You know, when this particular night we're talking about, I had no idea that the matches were going to be as good as what they were that night. And that you you can't gauge your crowd. I mean, sometimes it's not where you place your match. Sometimes it's the crowd out there and how much they are enjoying themselves and how much they're into it. I never felt felt like uh, if you had one good match. Uh, did you come back and you have a bad one afterward that you're not going to be able to get that big pop again on the end? Uh, and this particular night that I'm talking about is one of those nights, like I said, you could just feel something in the air that night and everybody was just into everything they saw. Uh, I didn't expect it to be that good. Uh, not nearly that good. And uh, I was surprised by it myself. Uh, but, uh, I thought you were going to say maybe I worked in the, in Madison Square Garden in 1973 for Vince Sr. And uh, I noticed in New York that they put their main event on in the middle of the card. You know, that was always strange to me. Uh, that what I always would have traditionally in the South been the last match was sometimes if they had a 10-match card, it would be the seventh match or the sixth match. And I was like, I think I think I asked uh, Joe Scarpa, uh, Strongbow, you know, because he was a friend of mine. What what's the story on this, Joe? And he goes, uh, he goes, they want to give people a chance to get out of the building. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> well, wait a minute, you know. I said, it's four matches before it's over. Right? You're going to have them go home be- before the matches end, you know. Well, they, you know, that's kind of the deal here. You know, that was his explanation for me, to me, but. uh, you know, I was never concerned about that with my matches. Um, 
I mean, uh, sometimes you're just going to have, you'll think that this is going to be a great match when you book it and you watch that match and you go, my gosh, that, that, that just wasn't what I thought. And then as the case of this card we're talking about here, uh, there was, I didn't think we were going to get half the reaction we got the entire evening. It was just one of those magical nights and, uh, and thank the good Lord for it. I mean, it happens sometimes and, uh, it happened on January 4th, 1976. Okay, so Ron, how big was that crazy crowd on that night? It was about uh, 3,200 fans, I guess, uh, about a 10,000 gross uh, for that night. Uh, and we had about, uh, we could have set 3,500. We had gotten that building expanded to where we could get 3,500 in it. Uh, if you looked at that building from outside, you'd say there was no way you could put that many people in it, but we were able to do it. And uh, I was happy to get over the 3,000. Uh, that's pretty darn good for that time of year. Uh, first week in January, uh, the payoffs that night were about $2,800. Uh, there were 14 total guys on the card. That was including the two referees. That was a four match night. That was really a surprise to me too. We had been having six matches and we cut down to four and we still had a crowd that was, uh, was good com- considering there were only four matches. It was just like a one, like I said earlier, it's just one of those nights you just don't expect to see that kind of response from a crowd. Uh, and every guy had worked hard that night. And the fact that they were all great workers, I looked at the card when I got ready to pay off and I did what I end up doing later on when, when my territories get to be big and they're all full from first match to last with tremendous talent. I pay everybody the same. And that way you don't have a problem in your territory because I also switched the main events around. I mean, uh, so that was one of the first nights I had ever looked at my card and said, I'm going to pay everybody the same because they had all worked hard and poor those Stallings there, you know, who's got to be carried to his car and somebody had to drive him back to Atlanta. I mean, uh, you know, I felt sorry for him. I'm not going to pay him a, a, a lesser payoff uh, for a night like that and what he had been through that evening. So, uh, you know, I paid everybody the same. Uh, so I paid, uh, every wrestler on the card got 200 bucks and, uh, and the two referees got a hundred dollars each. Uh, and I felt pretty darn good about the start of 1976 to tell you the truth. And, uh, and I felt like the boys thought that was a pretty decent payoff too. Uh, you got to bear in mind, this is 1976. We're not talking about today's money. Uh, I don't know what that figure is, but I'll guarantee you that $200 is more like uh, 600, 700 in today's money. So uh, just to just to put it in perspective, uh, wasn't a bad payoff. Uh, I had more reasons to feel big, good about what was happening in 1976 at that point, too. Uh, we'd already been running Johnson City, Tennessee, up there in the Tri-City areas. That's an extreme northeastern part of Tennessee. Uh, and on Tuesday nights, we'd been going there every Tuesday night. Crowds there were growing every week. We'd started off there uh, in the late summer and the fall of 75 with about 1,000 fans per show. By the end of 75, we were up to about 1,300, 1,400 a show. The building wasn't a big building. Uh, I would have liked to have had a much bigger building. It was just over 2,000 capacity. But by the end of 76, we were putting about twenty-two to twenty-five hundred in there every week, 
And we had no problem with the fire marshal because, oddly enough, thank goodness, he was a huge fan himself. <laughs> and we had to watch him. Sometimes you had to keep him from going after the heels. <laughs> it's like, come on, man, you got to calm yourself down. So had a good relationship with him, and he let us pack that building. We also ran in another of those three cities up in that area, in Kingsport. We ran in Dobbins Bennett High School. They had a gym that was big. It held about 4,000 people. And then and later on in 1977, we're going to start running in Freedom Hall in Bristol. That's the third of the Tri-Cities up there. And that Freedom Hall building was was 5,000 5, probably, maybe even more. Uh, and we needed those seats. By then, we're selling these buildings out. We're selling every building out uh, in, the, in the late, by late 76 and 77, 78 and 79. We were just really, really doing tremendous business. The Tri-City area was important to us because of the strength of the television station that was in Johnson City, Tennessee, WJHL. Uh, it was one of those rare cable systems back in those days. There was no cable TV, but there was a cable system, and this station was on it. It went from uh, basically mid-Tennessee uh, up into as far as West Virginia. So we were being seen in West Virginia off of a Johnson City, Tennessee television station. Uh, at this point, with uh, when we got on the JHL there in Johnson City, we were being seen in six states by that time, and uh, but we weren't ready to run in all six of those states yet, but we were being seen there. So we're going to get to get there some in 76. We're going to run in mid-76. In the summer of 76, we're going to begin to run in West Virginia, in Bluefield, West Virginia. So we're growing. Our territory is certainly growing at this point. Ron, let me ask you real quick. Uh, you mentioned all these different uh, smaller cities that you're going to. And before we started recording, I mentioned to you that my wife and I had a chance to go up to the Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge area. Did you guys have a run in uh, one of those two cities? Yes. Once we reached 76, we're going to run a little town that's only about 15 miles from there called Sevierville. And we're going to run quite a bit in Sevierville. They've got a big old gym there. We ran in Gatlinburg in the convention center. Uh, it, it, this was way back in the day now. We're back in the 76. And uh, <clears throat> when when we went there, the wrestling fans, there was a group of fans. It didn't draw. For one thing, it tourist towns don't draw very well because people want to do something else. They don't want to go sit in a building. They want to shop and go down up and down the streets and drive back into the hills. And they want to enjoy themselves. And uh, this night in Gatlinburg that we ran, we didn't have a very big crowd. And we had three guys, three younger guys, probably 20, 22 years old, sitting on the first row. And they were just uh, saying some horrible things, uh, calling things fake and just really trying to kill everybody's enjoyment of the matches. And so I, I watched it during the whole night. And uh, Mac Murray, my referee, he knew what I was all about, and he, he he says, Ron, he goes, don't go after those guys, <laughs> you know. He, he knew I was going to – I was upset by it. So, uh, anyway, I go out, and they do the same thing during my match. And, and uh, you know, I, I was very stiff with my work. I mean, I knew darn well that, you know, they're just punks. And uh, so when the match ended, uh, 
I, I ran to the door, the exit, and there were, wasn't a lot of people in the building, and, and I waited for them. And when those three guys came, I stopped them. I wouldn't let them out the building. And I said, uh, you guys think this is all fake, huh? You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I'll, 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 come on. Well, let's me and you, all three of you, go back up here to this ring. And uh, I'll beat all three of you in less than two minutes each. And uh, so... <laughs> There's a policeman there, and uh, he goes, oh, he starts talking to one of them. You know, like, hey, no, 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 no. And I, I say, come on, come on, guys. Uh, Y'all want to find out if it's not real. You know, you got the opportunity right here. This is, come on, get some of this. And, uh, you know, that I couldn't get him back there to the door. And thank goodness I couldn't because uh, <laughs> just about the time I was, I was going to actually grab one of them, uh, the, another cop comes in and he uh, he says uh, he says to me he pulls me off to the side and he goes do you know what you're doing and I said no uh, I don't know who these punks are and he says well they're not punks he goes that one right there is the son of the sheriff <laughs> oh <laughs> so I'm like oh, that would not have ended well for you <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess not. I would have spent a night in the Gatlinburg jail you know there's got to be a, a song about that somewhere spending a night in the Gatlinburg jail but uh uh, that was my only time we ever ran Gatlinburg in all the years I was there. Uh, but Sevierville and those towns around that area, they were on fire for wrestling uh, by 76, 77. You could not, there were no buildings big enough to hold the crowds that wanted to come and see it. So let's uh, jump back in here a little bit. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we'll talk about uh, what's happening uh uh, how things are expanding greatly at this time. Uh, my high school program that I'd been out there and trying to set up in the fall of 75 uh, now is beginning to start to say, bring us matches. So uh, we're in early 76 running instead of uh, two towns a week, uh, Friday and a Saturday night, sometimes a Thursday, we're up to four towns a week, uh, sometimes five towns a week. And uh, it's going to, by the end of 76, become six towns a week, and we're going to be a bona fide wrestling territory when we run six nights a week. Uh, we were, what was even more important was the response we were getting from these new cities that were 50 miles uh, on either side of Knoxville, anywhere around Knoxville, because that old television station only had a signal that went out 50 miles. So this new wrestling program had been seen in these all these cities 50 miles out of Knoxville that had never seen wrestling before. And I'm telling you, these towns were fantastic. Uh, the crowds were just crazy for it. Uh, and, and I had to, every time I went to these cities, they were full. The buildings were full. I mean, we weren't filling up Knoxville yet, but we were going to these new cities where they'd never seen wrestling before, and we could not get all the people in the building. Uh, these fans were in Kentucky, Virginia, and uh, Tennessee towns, and uh, they were crazy for it. So I had to take my wrestlers and sit them down every time we went to these new town, a new town. And I would have to tell them, I want to wrestle tonight. I don't want a punch thrown in this match. I want everything to be wrestling tonight because I wanted to build wrestling in that territory so badly. And I had an opportunity here working with new people that it was ridiculous. You would, a guy would get a headlock and you'd fire him off into the rope and he'd hit you with a tackle and the crowd would pop. I mean, he wasn't doing anything. 
And the crowd was so crazy for it. I said, no punches, no punching. I wanted to have wrestling. So I started these new cities that we were going into, giving them nothing but wrestling. And that made wrestling fans out of those people for all the years I was there until I left in 79. You never went to these buildings that they weren't full. Uh, so it was really, really a great experience. And to see what was happening uh, was just really, really amazing for me. And and, and all those wrestlers, I mean, you had uh, Carson and Dunn and, and Leon Baxter that would just shake their heads and go, Ron, I've never seen anything like this. We don't have to do anything to get heat. And I said, that's right. And let's keep it that way. You know, you had to. So you had to talk to your talent and you had to let them know exactly what type of match you wanted them to have. Uh, and I had those ba- those heels, those great heels, Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter and Carson and Austin and Butch Malone. And all of those guys were great leaders in the ring. The uh, heels led your matches. They were critical. I had all these young baby faces. Couldn't lead a match, but I had these great heels that could take these young kids and make really good matches out of it. Uh, so, and I'm going to add to that really good heel crew I'm developing at this point. Uh, within the next few weeks, Tora Tanaka and Dick Steinborn. I mean, two more great damn wrestlers. So, I'm developing the perfect crew for building new cities and uh, and to keep people and fans appreciating wrestling and not just punching and fighting and blood and stuff like that. I didn't want to get there because you could always get there if you wanted to. And if you needed to, to get it to sell out, that's what you could do. But I didn't want to do it. And I tried to control where how far we went. So overall, looking at my company in early 76, I knew we had a long way to go, but I was beginning to see some light at the end of the tunnel, I can tell you that. I'd been through a rough start with everything, from my lawsuit over my bad idea, having Dale Lewis shoot with fans from the crowd, trying to get fans involved with appreciating wrestling, uh, to getting hurt myself and losing three months of building myself as a top babyface because I had a collarbone problem. My personal life was getting a little better, too, even, you know, I mean, my wife and I, uh, we separated. She moved out. And uh, and and at that point, you know, she was never coming back. But I still had my sons on the weekend. I was living in one of the most beautiful places on Earth. And uh, you haven't been just up there, Jeff. I'm sure you can attest to that, man. There's a, it's not many pretty places, prettier places in that area. Amen. And I was beginning to end up with some money, money in my pocket again, you know, life was good for me. <laughs> so, so Ron, we're all interested in your new segment of the show each week. What do you have in mind this week for the studs learning tree? Well, as I said earlier in the, in the show today, the first match on the card on, on this Sunday afternoon, we discussed, uh, we talked about was a very unusual event in the sport, but you could obviously get hurt at any time in wrestling. And it just brought out that fact when Stallings got hurt that day. And uh, Mike Stallings, as I said, he was a very good worker for the short time he was in the business, uh, that he had been in the business. He was green, but he was really good. And he gets hurt in one of his first matches in Southeastern. You hate to see it because there's always another guy in the ring, thank goodness, and he is really the controller of what's going to happen in that ring and this guy in this particular match is leon baxter who'd been around for a long time and uh you hate to see stallings get hurt but he's in there with a guy 
who's going to know how to handle the situation. And uh, that's so extremely important in the match when somebody gets hurt. If you don't have a great heel that can take advantage of that and know how to handle it, finish that match, get a win. Uh, you could have two guys standing there or a guy standing over top of another looking at him and looking up at the referee and what do I do? And uh, the crowd is totally silent. It's a catastrophe. So, you know, what happened in this match is the reason I think this is a good little lesson for, for wrestling fans about how important the heel was in the match. And, uh, and the heel always led the match. And in the case of this match, between a great experienced heel like Baxter and a young, inexperienced babyface like Mike Stallings, it was critical that uh, if he got hurt, that it happened with a guy like Leon Baxter. So what happens when this injury occurred to Stallings uh, without a great leader? Like I said, you could the match could just stop. It, it, the fans would just, uh, they, their mouths would be open and they'd be going, what's going on? You know, I mean, uh, well, why doesn't he pin him or whatever it is? That didn't happen here. But when it happened in this match, uh, I'm standing up top watching it. I realized from up top on the balcony where I was watching it, and probably no fan that was in the arena did, that that the kid was hurt. And Leon, being the old pro he was, man, he realized that he was hurt, not just hurt a little bit, but bad. And uh, he knew exactly what to do. Uh, and if he'd have backed away and allowed the fans to realize that Stallings was hurt, there would have been that silence in the building. Uh, Stallings is already hurt, so you can either get nothing from the match or you can make that injury that he has worth something. So Baxter was instantaneous with his reaction. As soon as he realized he was hurt, he took advantage of the situation. Uh, the great old-timers could tell you how bad you were hurt. Uh, you know, they could see what happened to you like I was. I was I'd been in the business long enough to see it instantly. They knew when it happened, and they know Stallings uh, might be out for a while. And, uh, and he Baxter realized that I need to get myself over here at this point and at least get something, accomplish something from this injury that the kid has got. And, uh, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, it was a back injury. So he put Stallings in a Boston crab, but he didn't apply a lot of pressure like he normally would. And Stallings was still an, enough of a good hearted guy. And, uh, and wanted to make things happen. He felt horrible about his injury. And uh, he fought like crazy. He, he sold that Boston Crab like crazy. Uh, and he showed a lot of heart because that's a painful hole with Boston Crab, even if you're not hurt. If your back isn't hurting, somebody puts you in a Boston Crab and he sets down on you, you're going to be in pain. So he finally gave up. And the referee raised Superstar 2's hand. Uh, Leon Baxter's hand and I was upstairs and like I said I knew Stallings was hurt really bad so I took advantage of it too I went right to the dressing room and I said Rob Jimmy come on come with me we're going down to get Stallings so we the three of us went down to the ring and we carried Mike Stallings back he wasn't able to walk uh, it's kind of a great example of the benefits of having that veteran heel in the ring with those young baby faces. Baxter handled that situation perfectly. He got himself over big time by having his opponent carried from the ring on the first match of the night. Uh, Stallings is going to be out of action either way for three months. 
because of the injury. And rather than getting nothing from the injury, Baxter's quick thinking turned a negative into a positive. Since Baxter and Dunn were new in the territory as the superstars and they hadn't been working together long, I'd been trying to find a finish hole for those guys. I wanted to find a finish hole. So, you know, I've been looking for a finish hole, and there Baxter gave it to me right there in the most meaningful way. I watched him put that Boston crab on him, and I, I went back to the dressing room, and after we got uh, Stallings situated and, and taken care of, I sat down with those two heels, uh, with Dunn and Baxter, and, and I talked with them, and, and, and I suggested, you know, guys, we've been looking for a finish. I think we found it. I think you're Boston Crab. And they saw that just as clearly as I did, man, being the old pros they were. But they, but then, uh, you know, then they took that move as their finish, and they designed their teamwork around it. They began to work the back on their opponents every match they were in as a tag team. And you had to work something anyway in order to spend a decent amount of time in the ring. And to work in a particular body part, that's just a natural style of a tag team match. Uh, and I know a little bit about that because my family invented wrestling, tag team wrestling. So they took the ball basically and they ran with it. They worked their opponents back from then on until the crowd realized they were going to eventually be finishing that opponent with that Boston crab. Uh, basic tag team wrestling. That's what it was for a tremendous tag team. Uh, they were going to get over Southeastern wrestling as good as any team that ever worked for me. And it all started from an accident in the ring. I mean, pretty crazy, but that's where their history and their beginning started as a great team for Southeastern wrestling. Okay. You on Facebook can like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page and instantly become friends with the legend on Twitter. Ron Fuller Welch super stud cast number 24 with the exotic Adrian street still available. The next super stud cast will be released on the 14th of January. Where are we going next week, Ron? Well, we're going to continue on into 1976. Uh, we're going to go into uh, the Sunday afternoon of January 11th. We're going to keep uh, pursue this uh, Southeastern Heavyweight Championship tournament. There will be three of those tournament matches in the next event. We're going to open up some more of these new cities I've been talking about. We're going to talk about how new fans react to wrestling compared to older fans. And uh, then we're going to sit again under the learning tree. We're going to do it every week at the end of every program. And uh, next week, I have someone who has sent me a suggestion already. And we're going to be talking about some modern day wrestling. We're going to compare next week on the learning tree, 1976's crowds, attendances, and their television audiences to WWE today. And God bless everyone out there listening. And thanks for your support. Okay, for the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller and our producer, Sweet Lou Kibbleman, I am Jeff Bowdrin, and I'd like to remind you that the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and until next week, when the story continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>